Okay. <laughs> How about the sermon? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. Um, Tale of Two Rocks. We are in week 60, studying through the Gospel of Mark. And as we, as we come here, we're going to be in the end of chapter 14. Lord willing, we'll finish chapter 14 today. And uh, Lord willing, we will be done with this series uh, in, oh, five to six weeks. Six weeks if things go as planned. And um, just in time for uh, the summer break and a summer series that the elders and I are really excited about. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. But, but um, this is, this is a, a great, great experience. As we're coming to this stage towards the end, I just feel like this pressure because there's more here than I feel like I'm able to communicate in this, in this story. There's more details. There's more 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 events that it's hard to, to, to grab everything, but we'll do what we, what we can. But this text today um, is what we see many times throughout the, the gospel of Mark in this story, and the commentators call it a Markan sandwich, where he, he enters the story with a character. In this, in this case, it's a character. Sometimes it's an event. But in this case, he enters the story, starts the story with one character. Then he, then he introduces another character. And then he comes back to the original character that he started the story with. And he kind of sandwiches them to, together. And so the, the bottom bread of this sandwich this morning is, is Peter. And, and then we, we turn our attention and it moves to Christ, who's kind of the, the heart of the sandwich, appropriately so. And then back to Peter, who um, is the, the top slice. So that's where the analogy breaks down at that point. But um, this contrast is, is, is really important, um, and especially because in, in the midst of this contrast, what we see is that um, there, is a, there is a picture of Christ as the rock and Peter as a rock as well. Different kind of rock. We'll get to the, the details of that. But, but we see here the failure of one man, Peter, and the steadfastness of another man, which is, which is Christ. These are, these are two rocks. So let's pray, and then we'll jump right in, starting at verse 53. Father, thank you so much for this morning and um, just the the presence of your spirit here. And as was prayed this morning uh, by Barbara, just uh, this time is nothing without the presence of your Holy Spirit. And um, we are in absolute openness to your speaking to us and speaking through me and, and through the worship and through the fellowship time and through our Sunday school teachers and nursery workers. And, and we just invite you and let that be made known to you in the same way that Walt and Kathy um, renewed their vows yesterday, and and as Stephen and Pamela made their vows to one another, it's good to come together as a church and be reminded to look to your word and be reminded of the really the vow in which we've made to you and turning our life over to you. And those that are here this morning that have not done that, that have not given their life to you, we pray, Father, it'd be our prayer. And we know it's in line with scripture because you desire everyone to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We pray that you would be drawing them to yourself. And it's in Christ's name that we pray this. Amen. Mark frames the scene with this brief introduction, Peter, in verses 53 and 54. You can follow along as I read. And they led Jesus to the high priest. This is from the Garden of Gethsemane, by the way, if... We had Mother's Day last week, but we, Dr. Bob and I looked earlier in chapter 14 at, at 
the dark time of Jesus's arrest, his betrayal, and now he's in the arresting phase, leaving the garden. So, and they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and scribes, they came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. When the disciples fled Gethsemane, Jesus was bound and led across the the Kidron Valley here. And, and as, he, as he went back up from the Kidron Valley to, to Jerusalem, um, he's first taken to the home of the ex-high priest, Ananias, or um, Ananias. And then after that, he's led to the home of, of Caiaphas, which is the, the present high priest. And at this point in time, it's, it's, already, it's already midnight that this takes place. And the Sanhedrin, all the elders and leaders, the Sanhedrin, you can almost at midnight, they, they get the buzz, they get the text or whatever that says that they've got Jesus and they're bringing him to Caiaphas' home. Um, all of these from every corner of the city are, are trickling through. If you had a drone and you could look down from the top, that's newer technology. It wouldn't happen back then. But if you could, you would have seen lamps and lights just trickling in from all over to go to Caiaphas' home. These are all of the religious people that are looking to, to really to, to bring Jesus to his end. And so this is taking place. The Sanhedrin is 70 men, leaders of the, the nation, and they, they took their, their place in what was a, a pretty big, large um, hall courtyard. And the, the elders all kind of sat in a, in a semicircle. There would have been clerks that are there, like court recorders and those, those kinds of things. Um, and, and so the presiding judge or priest over this is this guy named Caiaphas. And this is an appropriate name for him because his name actually means inquisitor. And this was the, well, was the most famous um, of all inquisitions in all of history taking place right here, what we're going over. And the inquisitor, Caiaphas, is the one that's residing over it. Now, what's interesting about this particular case is that it's not one in which, uh, well, it has all of the, I guess, the adornments or the markings of a, a legal proceeding, but it's not that at all. This is uh, much different than that. And one of the reasons we know that, there's actually a number of reasons. One of those reasons is that they're breaking all kinds of rules, having this, this courtroom scenario at midnight. One is one of those rules was that they're not allowed as the Sanhedrin to make final judgments on anything at night, nor are they allowed to make any final judgments for or when they're away from the, the temple. They're supposed to be holding these kinds of things in the sacredness of the temple. And they're also not allowed to make any kind of capital offense punishments or sentences during the, the time of Passover. And so those are just three of the, the pretty huge rules, their own rules, that they're breaking in order to, to come here and to, to, to do what they're about to do to Christ. So, so really, this is, this is a kangaroo court, in, in essence, that, that's going on here. There's not a lot of teeth in this court, and we'll see why as we, we go into chapter, chapter 15. But this is some of the stuff. And, and now they look for a couple witnesses. They're looking for a couple witnesses to come against Christ so that they can bring a conviction because you need the testimony of two eyewitnesses in order to bring a capital offense, which they're not supposed to be bringing anyway. 
But that's what they're looking well. Now, as this is all happening, you got Peter. And Peter is following at, at a distance, and he, he enters into what would be Caiaphas' courtyard. Um, he's unnoticed. And we, we should note here that when Jesus was arrested, he, like all the other disciples, fled with their tail between their legs. But Peter at least gathered himself, and he, he came back to be good to his word. And, and earlier in Mark chapter 14, he, he claimed that he would never forsake Jesus. So after his, his quick little stumble, when he deserted, he said, oh, I can't do this. So then he goes back and he follows Christ into Caiaphas' courtyard. And, and now he was warming himself at the fire. And so this fire is, as you can picture at night, you've been around a campfire, and maybe it's at camp and you're sitting in the campfire and you can, you can see the glow of people's faces because of the fire going on. That's what's happening. Here's Peter. The, the glow of the fire is illumining him. And, and now this is where we, we see the introduction of the first of our two rocks in this passage uh, that we're going to put um, side by side as we look at them. And the, the first one is that, that Christ is the solid rock. I bet you could have filled that one out without me putting the, fi- the, the, the slide up. But Christ is the, the solid rock. So the Sanhedrin here, what they do is they, be, they begin to try and convict Christ on the testimony of others. And then Mark writes this. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they, they found none, for many bore false witness against him. But their testimony it didn't agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony, it did not agree. So, so here, here we go. Early in the, the ministry of Jesus, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He said that in John chapter 2, verse 19. Now, with this, he's not talking about what the Jews think he's talking about. He's not talking about Herod's temple. He's talking about himself, his body, his crucifixion. And so this is a misinterpretation of the Sanhedrin, which is really going to lead to the, the capital conviction because it's a threat against the temple. You, you can't make threats against the temple uh, in Jewish culture because that is oftentimes punishable by death. This happened to Jeremiah the prophet when he made a curse against or a, a prophecy against the temple. He was put on trial for capital murder. So, so even though they, they had um, the Sanhedrin, these dudes are rich. They have the best money that, um, money that false witnesses could buy. They couldn't get two false witnesses that could seem to, to join their, their lies about Jesus together. It's tough enough to tell uh, um, the truth in two. We used to do this in youth group where we this telephone game, right, where you start two kids back to back and you run this long row and you give them, you give them a word like, um, the elephant ate grass, and by the time you get done, it, at the end, they're saying, like, your mom is mean to me, and you have to go to bed now, or something like that, you know, so, so there's something along those lines, well, it's tough enough, well, these false witnesses, they're not able to, to bring this conviction, because they, they um, ha- don't have a, a, a good report that, that lines up with one another. And what's great here, and this is huge in this story, at this point in this kangaroo court, in this point in this trial, Christ has said not a word, and yet he is totally winning. He's, he's winning the, the whole thing, um, and he hasn't even spoken a word yet. 
And so with that, and I don't know if you've noticed that Proverbs says that, that a gentle anger turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs it up. Well, in this case, a quiet word and no word at all um, brought about a great deal of anger and frustration, and it's building up here in this court. So embarrassed, furious, um, Caiaphas approaches our silent Jesus, our silent Lord, and he says this, have you no answer to make? Was it that these men testify about you? But he, Jesus, he remained silent and he made no answer. So this, this, um, this deafening silence that was coming through here, through Christ, it was, a, uh, it was a prophecy that comes in many places in the Old Testament. I'll just highlight this one from Isaiah 53. It says that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his, his mouth. Caiaphas was at this point, he's really kind of at his wits end. He's frustrated. And, and, and so he says this, he says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Uh, Matthew tells us, he has the detail that it was asking or putting Jesus at this point under oath, oath of their court to answer that question. Are you doing this? And when he, when he asked this question, he was really asking two questions in one. He was asking the question, are you the Messiah? He was also asking the question, are you God? Because the, the term the blessed is always in the New Testament referring to God. So, so Jesus, um, he didn't have to answer at this point. He didn't need to do that. But uh, now was the, the, the time in which he decided to speak up. And, and he, says, he says this. He says, I am I am, and at that moment, if you put a comma there, you could almost see when Jesus said, I am, that the, the mouths of the, the Sanhedrin, their, their, their mouths probably dropped open, and they probably had this, this flood of joy at his saying that. And then Jesus goes on, and he says, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds in heaven. What's going on here, it's both a confession of Christ that he is the Messiah and he is God, as well as it's the fulfillment, and he's alluding to a number of Old Testament prophecies about him. I think you have these in your notes. I'm not going to um, put them on the screen, but Isaiah 52, 8, it says, For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. And then in Psalms 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Daniel 7.13 records this, that I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Ultimately here, what Jesus is saying is, yeah, you're, you're judging me, but I will judge you. Uh, these really are the only words uh, to the leadership of, of Israel that, that he speaks. And these words are incredibly, incredibly powerful. But as we know in looking at scripture, they're hard-hearted. The, the, the Sanhedrin can't hear that. And a brief pause here too, but for us, there's oftentimes where, where God will speak to us very clearly and it can be through a host of things. It can be through the sermon, 
through your own private time in his word, through a friend, through a Sunday school class, through a song, through his revealing himself to you as you walk in nature or go on a run or go hunting. It can be all of these different things. I should probably include more women's activities, Um, you know, sewing and crafting and shopping and (laughs) whatever else. Uh, He can reveal himself to all of these different things in all of these different ways, but, but what is the condition of, of our heart? Because it's just crazy as we look at this story, right? That, that here's the Messiah, the one that is everywhere. I mean, I've just given just a couple passages this morning of prophecies that are fulfilled, but here's the Messiah and all through uh, the old Testament that many of them have memorized huge portions of it. And he's coming up and, and they don't recognize him and their hearts are so hard that they don't hear it. And, and, and boy, I just pray for us. When I pray for you, that's one of the things I pray for, that one of the many things is I pray for through our congregation is just that you would have soft hearts to the, the Lord working on you and that you would be responsive to that because, because it's not just enough to know. It's not just enough to sit at a good sermon. It's not just enough to listen to or to read. It, it really comes down to belief. It comes down to, to, to action uh, that puts the, you know, James says it so well, faith without action is, is dead. So now let's jump in verse 63 through 65, the high priests, we're still in the, the Jesus as our rock, Christ is our solid rock portion of the sandwich. And it says this, the high priest, he tore his garment and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And, and the guards received him with, with blows. Again, they're breaking all kinds of rules, just making this pronouncement right here. And that's just the way evil works. Evil can have its own rules, uh, and yet it seems to not care about those, those guidelines when it comes to hurting the opposition. So in this case, in this scenario, what's happening right now here, there's souls, literally there's souls that are, that are tumbling in darkness, that are, that are in a spiral, that are being sucked into the pit of hell. This is a dark, demonic moment in history because they right now are condemning to death their Messiah, the same Messiah that they, they say they're waiting for. But this Messiah doesn't fit their idea of what the Messiah is supposed to be. And so, boy, it's a dark, it's a dark time in history. And it's, it's a dark time in any history, in anyone's life, when, when they, they put their hand up to the Savior's drawing them to themselves. It's, it's a dark time in any case. But this is a really dark time because, boy, they're right there. They're responsible for putting, for putting him to death. Now, um, some here in this case began to spit on him which is really the grossest um, form of personal insult. And one of them, they cover his head with a cloak, and then they literally, they start to crush him in the face with their knuckles to beat him. This is our Savior. And they, they're beating him in the face. Now, this reminds me of the men's breakfast yesterday. You're thinking, wow, what did I miss at the men's breakfast? You missed a lot. Men's breakfast yesterday, and Marshall Adams shared his testimony and he shared how um, in his early days, 
before the Lord got a hold of him, he was known for his, really for his knuckles, he didn't use that word, but he was known in the county for taking anybody on in a fight, and if Marshall was there and you were on his side, you were in good, you're in good standing, that's how it worked. But that all came to an end 37 years ago when Christ got into his heart and, and completely removed that as well as a, a number of other things um, from his life. But I digress. <laughs> we, we come forward now. Um, they, they challenged him now. The, the, they challenged him to prophesy. Um, who, who was it that did this? They, they're mocking him as they're beating him and spitting on him. Unwittingly, they're fulfilling another one of the prophecies, the, the prophecy of Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave back those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and from the spitting. So really the guards here, they're trying to imitate the, the religious leaders, the leadership of that day by, by beating on Jesus and just, just mocking him. So um, one commentator at the point of this said that this is the earth's darkest, longest day. And Peter would later say when Peter wrote, uh, the first Peter, he wrote this. He said, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Judges justly. So, so in all of this, I know this is, this is a bit of a dark moment, but in all of this, the glory is that through everything, every pressure, every opportunity to, to, to cower, the rock of our salvation did not crack. And that's the beautiful thing. In the midst of the chaos, our Savior is in complete control. And we know from other places in Scripture, he could have ended things with, with a thought at that moment, but he doesn't because he, he knows that it, it is God's plan for him to go through this because of you and because of me and because of our sin in order for us to be right with God, to be with God eternally, to be part of this family it was imperative that he walks through this. So now in our story, it turns our attention. You have Peter, then you have Christ. And now it turns back to, to Peter. And so when Jesus was arrested, the disciples came. Um, the disciples, like we said earlier, they all became deserters at this point. But, but Peter, he turned around and, and he courageously gained access to the courtyard of, of Caiaphas. And, and really, you know, we should, Peter gets a pretty, pretty bad rap most of the time. But we should give him kudos for that. He was one that, that, of the 11 that was left that didn't, that didn't um, stay in hiding. But, however, Jesus had warned Peter that very night. He had warned Peter uh, that, um, that he was going to deny him. And not only once, but he was going to end up denying him three times. And that leads to the second, the second part of your notes, which Peter is the cracked rock. He is the cracked rock. <laughs> this week, thinking about this, I keep saying in my mind he's a cracked pot. Uh, and that's true too. It's, uh, Corinthians talks about us being um, us being fragile, like jars of clay, in which the glory of God can shine through. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a cracked rock. Um, Matthew 16. Jesus had had named Peter Peter. He was the one that said Peter, um, Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And so we see this rock in which was named by Christ. 
fail, crack, and, and then we walk through and we get to see three denials. So here are the three denials. Number one is in verses 66 through 68. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster, it crowed. And it's really, it's hard to believe at this point. It's, it's hard to believe that this was the same guy who, who just hours earlier whacked off the ear of one that was trying to, to arrest Christ. He was also the one that boldly declared in Luke 22, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you. I'm ready to go to death for you. Just a few hours earlier that he was in that position with Christ, Christ warns him, hey, you are going to deny me three times. You'd think that that would cause you to gird up your loins, you know, to be ready. And uh, it's not the case here. So, so Mark tells us that he's warming himself by the fire, but, but now things by the fire are just becoming a little too hot for him. And so he tries to, to get out of there, and this girl spots him, and she, she looks closely at him, and she says, this, this man was, was with him. Uh, Peter here, he's, he's, he's caught off guard. Uh, he, he, in essence, is, is saying, um, well, he's, he's going through at this point, going through his denial of, of Christ. He's saying, you know, talk to the hand. I don't know what you're talking about. And uh, he, he comes to the servant girl and cowers in fear of the question of this, this servant girl. Now, Peter, number two, the denial, uh, says in verses 69 and 70, Peter moves away from the fire. He's now under this covered walkway. And where he thinks he's safer, I suppose. And the servant girl saw him, and she began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, but again, he denies it. He denies it. He, you know, he's that from that line, um, you don't understand the words that are coming out of my mouth. He, he's, he's, he's saying, I have nothing to do with this. Now, number three, the third denial. And after a little while... After a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them. You are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know this man of whom you speak. We need to be really clear here. Peter isn't saying a bad word or a cuss word here. He's doing something much, much worse. He, he is literally calling a curse down on himself if he is found to be lying by making this proclamation. And so you'll notice, I mean, how hard it is to hear Peter say this the third time. He uses the term this man. He talks about Jesus as this man, as if he is some unknown person to him. And, and so in saying this, Peter, really what he's saying, he's saying, may I be condemned to go to hell if I am found to be a follower of this man. The more he talks, the more people see, the more we see the, 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 just the collapse of his character and his integrity and his faith right here. As, as the pressure comes, he cracks. He, he gets crushed here. And, and uh, there's, there's, there's a lot there. We'll get to that. But as Peter is, is cursing here, he, he hears the rooster crow the second, the second time. And I kind of picture him freezing in, in kind of mid-sentence at this moment. 
because in verse 72 it says this, and immediately, immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus has said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. So um, at the point of, of, of Peter's denial, Luke adds a, a very powerful detail in verse 22, or verse 61 of chapter 22. And he says that the Lord, the Lord turned and he looked at Peter at this moment. He looks at him. He looks at Peter as this rooster crows and Peter makes this denial. This is a key part of the story. And as Peter looks into the gracious faith of, of his Savior, whom he just called that man, as if he didn't know him or he was a stranger, Jesus' face, it's covered with spit. It's covered with bruises from the punches in which he is taken. And yet, in the midst of all of that pain, he sees a pardon for him. He sees the love and the compassion that can come through only the Savior's eyes to him. And what was it there? It was that compassion. It was that love of the Savior in, in which broke him. It broke him. It caused him to, to wake up to the grossness of his denials and his sin. And, and it caused him to, to weep bitterly. It reminds me of Romans chapter 2. Verse 4, this is only part of the verse, and it should have a question mark at the end. But it says, don't you see how wonderfully kind and wonderfully tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can you not see that it is his kindness in which leads you to repentance? So, so Peter here, after, after seeing Christ and hearing the rooster crow that second time, he began to wail. He began, I mean... I don't know if you've been in those situations where you're just completely broken, completely empty. You're at your complete wit's end, and you have to just, there's nothing to do but just to, to lay yourself bare. That's what is going on here. And it was the kindness of Christ that, because he didn't deserve it. I mean, boy, Jesus gave him plenty of opportunities. And Peter was relying so much on his own power and strength. He, he said many times in the gospel that, that you know what? You know what? I'll never, I'll never back away. I'll never deny you. You don't have to wash my feet. You know, he was the most bold one that was out there. And here he is. He's falling. And, and you know this story. But I wonder today, specifically, I wonder if you feel like Peter. I wonder if you're at that place this moment where you feel you have failed and maybe you cannot be forgiven. Maybe your marriage is a mess or a close friendship is just broken. Perhaps you've been fired from your job and business has been bust. I talked with a man this week. I think it was 16 years, a guy from our town and got laid off um, because of a big corporate buyout after 16 years and he was thinking of retirement and now that's up. Um, maybe it's a slow leak in your integrity or maybe it's a huge blowout in, in your integrity. It could be that today is the time to, to move from rebellion to repentance and so that God can bring into your heart restoration. Because that's really at, at the deepest part of our heart is what we're desiring is, is to be restored. And, and it's important to remember from the story of Peter that a denial does not disqualify you or me from serving and being a powerful witness for 
Christ. It just doesn't happen. Uh, you got to remember here that when Peter, he's falling into the sin that he's falling into, his Savior, at that same moment, even for what all he's going through, is preparing for him and going to provide for him the salvation here just shortly. Even when he's in the midst of his, his sin. After, after Christ is put to death, we're going to get there as we close out the Gospel of Mark. But after Christ is put to death, the disciples, the disciples, they're afraid to go into hiding. And I, I love what the angel says, which makes sense because it's an angel. They think he'd say good things. So the angel says to the women who had come to the empty tomb on Sunday morning, and, and, and he says, go, tell his disciples and Peter that, tell, I, I read that wrong, go and tell his disciples and Peter that he was going before you into Galilee and that you're going to see him just as he told you. So the angel, the angel goes and he wants Peter to hear this special message. This is a custom message that is designed for him. And, and in all of our lives, this is a custom message that's designed for us because all of us experience the, the failing forward, I guess, failing forward. Uh, and as we go, so as we look at Peter, I'm just gonna. There were so many different life lessons from Peter that I wanted just to kind of pull out a few that apply here specifically as as we wrap up here. And one of those is this: good intentions are not good enough. Peter here did not intend to, to deny Christ. His intentions, in fact, were very good. Uh, but his intentions weren't followed through with, with godly faith and godly action. Now, he's in a rough spot. We have to recognize that. But, but I know when I hear from you and I hear what you have to go through, uh, talking with a brother who has to go through at work, he had two Christian friends, and both of those Christian friends moved to a different branch. And now he feels alone, and he feels like when he walks into the break room, it's just uh, uh, he's, a, he's a whooping bag for the guys to, to make fun of him about his faith. And so we get put in these situations. But, but good intentions are not, are not good enough. And, and really pride, and that's the heart of what's going on with Peter, pride, self-sufficiency, it's dangerous. It's destructive. It, it's really, it is sin to us. And, and Jesus rebuked Peter for, for that, for his pride earlier. So good intentions just, they, they don't go far enough. And the next thing here is that our failure doesn't forever ruin our witness. Our failure doesn't forever ruin our witness. I know that in the midst of my darkest failure of my adult life, came back when I was in my early 30s, uh, I remember that Satan was specifically, him and his demons were, were trying to implant thoughts in my head that because I've failed so miserably and so publicly that, that I am, you know, everything, first off, that, that God had done in my life, that was all fake. It wasn't real. Because if it was real, you wouldn't have made this mistake. And on the other side of it, the, the thoughts that he was drilling into my mind was that uh, I am no longer valuable or good or able to be used of by God because of the misery of my failure. And, and I'll tell you what, um, that's a lie. It's just a lie from the pit of hell. Uh, uh, and, and I'm so glad that I'm so glad that I had people in my life that didn't let me listen. It took me a number of years before I actually believed the truth completely about that. And and thankfully, because I get to be here with you, big part of that. But I, I wonder how many people stay sitting. 
and I'll just use an example, sitting in church and not stepping up to serve in an area where they might feel gifted but are scared to because they have a, a, a failure in the past or a weakness in their life and they feel like, well, because they've made this failure, you feel like because you've made this failure, God doesn't, you're not usable to him. Or maybe it's because of an, an age or a disability or some kind of weakness or lie. And that's just not true because if you're part of the body of Christ, you have a gift that I cannot grow without you exercising that gift. And the, person, the people around you cannot grow without you exercising your gift and, and using it to edify the body of Christ and the church. And so, so this, and this is, yeah, we have lots of needs at the church. You can see them on the needs board. We have Sunday school teachers' needs, nursery workers' needs. We have a huge need within the youth ministry. There's lots of needs that are upon us. And this has nothing to do with trying to fill those needs. It has everything to do with us as the church being obedient to the, the call that God's put on our life and not believing this lie that because of, because of past failures, I'm no longer of use for the kingdom of God. And Peter is just the perfect example of this because he, well, Dr. Bob, what week are we in the study of, of Peter? Week one of Second Peter chapter two. How long did it take to go through First Peter? Years. Two years. <laughs> you say that meekishly. That's a wonderful thing. <laughs> two years to go through the book of Peter, bit by bit, because there's so much. And I know if I was to ask Doctor Bob, did he feel like he was completely exhaustive? Um, I'm guessing he's. He, I'm guessing not. I won't put you on the spot. But there's so much more. Why? Because the Word of God is alive and active. But more importantly, more importantly is that, that, that Peter didn't stick around. I had a boss that would always say this, don't cry in your beer. He, he didn't sit around and just cry in his beer, get stuck. We know that he was dragging his, his knuckles for a while, but it didn't take very long for him to, to reject this lie and realize that he was going to continue on and be the rock that Christ talked about him being and help establish the church, and we today are still being blessed by him. And, uh, and, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. The third thing we learned from Peter is that sin multiplies before you know it. This is how sin works in our life. We open the door just a little sin. We think it's, ah, not a big deal. We justify things in our life. It's just watching this or saying that or thinking this thought. It's just one of those things. And as we do that, we think it's not a big deal. But look at the life of Peter. I mean, He's in the garden with Jesus. First off, supposed to be praying with Christ, and he falls asleep. And then after that, he comes in a situation where he, he tries to defend Christ, but it wasn't to his glory, to God's glory. And so Jesus has to fix his mess up when he chops off the guy's ear. But he's still at that moment making this declaration that, that I will never fall away. And really his sin is self-sufficiency and pride. And I can do this in my own strength. I'm a, I'm a capable person. I can make this happen. I'm gonna, this is the way it's going to be. He didn't, he didn't apply what James says to, to, as you go about, realize your life is a vapor. It is a mist. And, and go about your life knowing and saying, it is the Lord, if it is the Lord's will that I do such things. Peter wasn't keeping that lesson while well, it hadn't been written yet, but he wasn't keeping it in mind or applying that 
in this particular case. But, but as we look at this, this sin for Peter, in just a matter of a few hours, he goes to being Jesus' best friend and being, being um, part of the denying group of people, calling him this man, saying he doesn't have any clue who this guy is. In just a few short hours... If it can happen to Peter, you've got to believe it can happen to us. And, and that's why after a service like this, that's why we need to be in one another's lives. That's why a, a Sunday morning in Rose isn't enough. That's why we, we talk about other groups, growth groups, or men's, women's, Bible studies, different places. We need connection points because if Peter does it after just a few hours, how much more um, vulnerable are we in a day and an age where we don't have Christ right in front of us? to fall temptation, fall prey to sin. Because when sin, it multiplies quickly. It, it's, it, when it wants to go, it goes and it goes quickly. And so this, this story, I believe, with Peter, it, it really does resonate well with me and with us as human beings because we can really relate to Peter and some of the things in which he has, has experienced and gone through. And yet he comes out as... As, as God's man after it anyway. And, and the fourth and really the most important and final, final warning of Peter's denial is, is more of an application point, is the importance of repenting and, and receiving Christ Jesus as your Lord. In essence, he was a follower of Christ, but when Christ's compassionate eyes looked at him, it melted his hard heart. He broke down, he wept, and he wailed. And I know that not everyone in here has done this. Has, has taken this step of faith to give their life over to, to Christ Jesus. And if we want Christ to, to be in our life, to be our Savior, if we want eternity, if we want heaven, it doesn't come with good intentions. It doesn't come with working hard or trying to be a good person. It only comes from turning your life over to Christ Jesus. And, and that's what Peter had, had modeled here at this point. And, and this is kind of a direct and hard statement, but I want to read it as I have it written in the notes because it needs to be read. Will you, will you bow before him or will you beat him with your fists? Will you continue to be angry with him or will you come to the point of adoring him? You can attack him or you can turn your life over to him. Turn your life over and submit to his rule in your life. Will you accept Jesus as your savior now so that the judgment that you rightly deserve for your sin will be aborted by the blood of Christ? Your just punishment will be taken over by his blood. Because the reality is, the reality is, that if we refuse to repent and to receive Christ Jesus in our light, we are going to stand one day before him condemned, condemned to death. And it's only the blood of Christ in which is going to pave the way for us to take that step in eternity. But it's not just an eternity that starts when you die. We who are followers of Christ get to experience the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the gentleness, the faithfulness, the self-control in this life. Not perfectly, just ask my family, not perfectly, 
but we get to experience that as we continue to grow together, as we get in each other's lives, as we submit ourselves to his, his word, and as we, we believe what we are, we re, we are reading. I, I didn't go through this in Judas, and I regret this, but the, one of the main emphases in the book, or with Judas that, that I would have liked to bring out is that with Judas, um, you can know all the stories, listen to all the sermons, and you can still be lost because it's not about how much you know it is about what you believe do you believe it do you do you walk away in the things that we talk about here do you believe in the word of god do you believe that christ walked through this that that he did the things that were said in scripture and he did it for you and for me is that something in which you believe I hope so, because there's lots of people, and lots of people, I would say, even sitting in churches all across America and the world today, lots of people who know the stuff, lots of people that understand the theology, but these are not people that, that when they walk away in the heart, the depth of their heart, believe what they're reading, and, and that's what it comes down to. It's a requirement that we believe it. It's a requirement. 